uh, wooden doors in the back, please. The all-important wooden doors. Thank you so much. I want to speak to you uh, today, preach and teach on a pained heart, a heart that's filled with pain. You know, when righteousness rules in a, in a nation, in a church, in a family, the people rejoice. Now, in a nation, there's always rebels. And the tragedy is when people say, we will not be happy in God, we will try to find our happiness in something else. And of course, there is no happiness. And so people defiantly go against the Lord. They say, we're going to have it the way that we want to have it. And they plunge not only themselves, but they plunge others into greater despair and deeper misery. And our hearts groan. We wait for the day when the Lord will come back, when he returns. And all the heaviness of heart, the, 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 the pained heart, the woes of this life are behind us. And sometimes in the middle of tragedy, in the middle of sorrow, we cannot see clearly. Sometimes we can see clearly, and sometimes we cannot see clearly. And even remembering back to the times of when there was freedom in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord seems so distant, and one begins to wonder, will that ever come again? Will the chains ever be loosed again? The, the feeling of being downcast, as the psalmist said, Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. Speaking to himself, hope in God. I remember back when I was in the procession as we would march to the tabernacle. I remember the days of when God was moving with great power. Remember those days when we sense the presence of God and we look forward to those days that they would come again and even increase. Some of us have never even experienced that before. Some of us have experienced the Lord's presence in a small way, perhaps a deeply changing way, but the sense of overwhelming freedom in, in a church. The idea of revival... The idea of almost unhinged joy is a foreign concept. And so the Lord not only wants to refresh those who remember days of great rejoicing, but he wants to bring people who have never experienced that at a corporate level into a time of rejoicing. And then we say to ourselves, wow, Lord, you're really, you really are moving. You're at work here. You're at power here. You, you, are, you are moving in my life. I didn't see this before, but God, you are. You have come to set the captive free. A picture of happiness and this kind of joy is found in Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8 says this in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. Now this is going to go into speaking about a prophetic word here from the Lord about the second return of Christ. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. So where there was mourning and there was sadness, the old women 
the old men are no longer sitting in the streets. Remembering back to the old days, God is saying, I'm going to bring that back. Remember times of freedom. Remember times of joy. Remember the old men and the old women sitting on their porches, sitting out in the street. Remember the sense of community and the sense of happiness and the sense of freedom. Say, I'm going to bring that back. And the streets, each with staff, that is the old people, each with staff in hand because of great age, they're living to have many years. Verse 5, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Wow, what a sight. Joy in the land. The Lord is a a God of joy. He's a God of happiness. He's not a God of uh, sorrow and uh, depression. We live through the sorrow in this life. There's tragedy in this life, but that's not the ultimate plan of God is just endless pain forever, endless sorrow forever, endless mourning forever. No, no, these are the things that are a result of sin. And so he's painting in this beautiful passage, this picture of joy and this picture of happiness, old men, old women in the streets and the streets being filled with boys and girls playing. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it is a marvelous sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. So there's this beautiful picture joy. There's the understanding here of happiness and uh, laughter. Oh, that's what we need. Joy. Happiness. When there is a sense of gloom in the land, it is an awful feeling. The sense of unhappiness sense that things are all going in the wrong direction, what a tragic feeling that is, a feeling that leads one almost to the point of despair. And God comes in and he says, that is not the way it is always going to be. There's a verse that has been beautiful uh, in my meditation this past week. If you go over to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, verse um, 19, says this, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Here it is, verse 20. The times of refreshing, here it is, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And a time of refreshing would come into this church. How about in your own life, a time of refreshing? The Spirit of God moving mightily on your heart. Is that what your heart longs for as you say, that's, that's what I need is a time of refreshing. Not just physical refreshing, not just financial refreshing, but the sweet presence of God coming into my life again. A fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. A sense of his overwhelming power and his overwhelming joy coming into my life. 
That's God's desire. But the truth is what is felt in Mark chapter 15 is the exact opposite. In Mark chapter 15, what is felt here is deep pain. It's a stunning turn. The followers of Jesus have been excited about him. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we have waited for. This is the king. Things are looking good. He has the triumphal entry as he rides into Jerusalem. And all of a sudden there is this tragic and stunning turn. It is that this is not only an awful setback. It is that this is the taste of a tragic end. This is final, his death. All their hopes are vested in this man. They said, this is the Messiah. This is the one who is going to save us. And now, not only has he been whipped and tortured, but he's been nailed to a cross. And maybe at the last second, God is going to come and save him. Maybe Elijah will hear and will come from the heavens and somehow save this one. That's not what happens. He breathes his last. He gives up his spirit. And those who are watching are standing there in almost abject disbelief. This is it. This is not them going, look, here's what we're going to do. He died on Friday, but that's okay. All we have to do is hang out through Saturday, and then Sunday morning he rises from the dead. That's not what they're thinking. They're not thinking of the resurrection. They're not thinking of, wow, Christ died, but that's okay because Christ died. We understand the full plan of redemption here. We understand what salvation is all about. Christ had to die for our sins according to the scriptures. We get that. And we understand that on the third day he's going to be raised from the dead. So let's go throw a party. That's not what they're thinking at all. They're going, he left us. I can't believe this. All of our hopes. Everything that we thought was going to happen, the joy that we were looking for in Zechariah, this is what we thought Christ was going to bring. And they're looking at the cross, and there he is with his head bowed. His spirit is now gone. He is, he is dead. Where are they going to turn? What other revolutionary are they going to look to? There, there is no one else. This is it. This is almost as bad. This is as bad as somebody saying, God died. Now, we know God cannot die. This is Christ in the flesh who dies. But this is like someone coming along to us and saying, you know, God died yesterday. And you go, what? God died? It's like, where do you turn at that point? God's dead. What's option B? Where, where, do, you go from, where do you go from there? That's what they're thinking. Not, oh, he's going to rise from the dead. They're thinking, this thing is over. This is final. This of uh, John chapter 6, verse 68, when, uh, when Simon says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has looked at Peter, he's looked at his disciples and he says, you guys going to leave me too? Everyone else is leaving me. Peter's standing there, he says, well, where, where else are we going to go? We don't, we don't have any other options, Lord, you're it. Who else has the words of eternal life? We have found 
you to have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. And now there are people who are standing at the foot of the cross, and the question that they could have very well been thinking is, Lord, where shall we go from here? How do we even cope? And we notice that there are several different reactions There's a sincere and strong confession in verse 39. If you go over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Verse 39. And when the centurion, this would be a soldier who was a leader over a hundred men, stood facing him. Now he had heard the mocking. He had heard what people had said about him. That is the Christ. He was listening when the criminals were railing against him. And surely he was listening when the one said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus had responded, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. He's watching all of this. And he's deeply affected. Perhaps he had heard some preaching before. We, we don't know. We don't know exactly how much he knew. But we knew that as he stood facing him in verse 39, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Perhaps he didn't know a whole lot, but he did know this. This was the son of God. There's some debate over whether he's saying this is a son of God or this is the son of God. But he's deeply moved and he makes a right confession. He's looking at Jesus, even though Jesus has now died, He's saying there's something different about him. This man got to my heart. This is not any old criminal. This is not just a regular revolutionary. This is somebody who is unique. This is somebody who is the son of God. There are people who can come into this church, listen, without any background in Christianity. And they're listening to the gospel being preached, or perhaps somebody is opening up the Bible before them for the first time. Perhaps they've heard a little bit about the gospel before, smatterings of things about Christ. All of a sudden, their eyes are opened. They don't need a whole history. They just know because of the witness. Listen, the witness of the Holy Spirit is this powerful. A person can be sitting there, and they're viewing who Jesus Christ is now, not through physical eyes, but through spiritual eyes, And they're looking at him and they're going, truly, this is the son of God. I don't know how I know this, but I know it to be true. And this is my solid confession. This is a sincere confession that this is who I believe that Jesus is. Jesus has died. He has bowed his head. As they came by to break the legs to speed up the death process as they came to Christ, soldiers realized that he was already dead. He had been through so much. So a soldier takes a long spear. If you go over to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, verse 33. John 19, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Doctors are 
still trying to figure out exactly what is going on here. It's possible that he had a ruptured heart. It's unusual that blood and water would come out like this, but it's the witness of Scripture, and it's absolutely true. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Trust Christ. He trusts Christ at the moment of his actual death. Robertson says this If he was one now to trust in Christ, that is this centurion, he came as a pagan. And like the robber who believed was saved as Jesus hung upon the cross. Isn't that awesome? The, the criminal is saved while he is hanging on the cross, and now this centurion with genuine faith, is looking at Christ, already dead on the cross. He goes on to say this, all who are ever saved in truth are saved because of the death of Jesus on the cross. Let me say that again. All who are saved in truth are saved because of the death of Jesus on the cross. There is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That's what Acts says. The only way to salvation, the only way to heaven, there is no other way, there's no alternative way. If one is to be faithful to the scripture, it is Christ and Christ alone, and it is through the death of Christ that any person will ever be saved. Robertson goes on to say this, so the cross began to do its work at once. How powerful is that? So the cross began to do its work at once. Even as Christ was dying, and even after Christ had died, his work was immediate as people began to come to him in faith. So there was this sincere and there was this strong confession But there were also other people who were standing there nearby the cross. If you go back to verse 40 of Mark chapter 15. There were also women. Now, women in that day were seen as inferior. In fact, it was improper for a woman to go out into public with other men. She had to be hanging around other women, but these women were absolutely dedicated, and they're looking on from a distance, so they're watching this whole thing. The question is, were there anybody, were there any believers at the cross? Well, we know the centurion was at the cross. We know that these ladies were at the cross. The other disciples had fled. We know John was there at the foot of the cross, at least for a while. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and the mother, Mary, mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and of Salome. And we know from John chapter 19, verse 25, we have four different women, and trying to piece all of this together... We know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was standing there watching her son die. That's awful. It's bad enough if uh, 
your son is dying and they're in a hospital, that is tragic enough. And mothers have gone through that. But to watch your son being crucified on a cross, and she's standing there horrified at this whole sight of exactly what is going on. But it had been prophesied, and one has to wonder if her mind was going back to the Christmas story of Luke chapter 2. So if you flip over to Luke chapter 2, verse 19, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 2. The shepherds have come in from the fields. Mary was obviously given to pondering things and meditating on things and thinking about things. As she hears the the story, she says in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things pondering in her heart. She knew that she was a virgin. She had given birth to a child without even knowing a man. She's thinking about his miraculous birth, how he came into this world. She's thinking about the testimony of the shepherds as angels had come to them, letting them know that there was a child that was born in Bethlehem. Now she's standing at the foot of the cross, the only virgin mother ever. She's looking at her son, and he is dead spirit has been given up and she is probably treasuring and pondering all of these things, all the things that she's been through, all the things that she has been told about her son. Perhaps she's thinking back to the words of Simeon. If you look at verse 34 of the same chapter, Luke chapter 2, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And he says to her prophetically, a sword, here's how she's feeling at the cross, and a sword will pierce through your soul also. Mary, how do you feel? How does it feel to be standing here at the foot of the cross watching your son die? It feels like a sword is going through my soul. That's what she's saying. That's what had been prophesied. Simeon says, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So we know that she's standing at the foot of the cross, or at least nearby the cross. From John 19, 25, we also know that Mary's sister was standing there. This is probably Salome of our chapter here in Mark chapter 15. Also Mary, this, this Salome, this, this is Mary's sister, Salome. She would be the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee which means that these apostles, James and John, were Jesus' cousins. And so you not only have Mary standing there watching, but you also have Jesus' aunt standing there watching the events that are taking place, his cousins, James and John. So her name, this mother's name, is Salome. So you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have Salome the one who has given birth to James and John. In fact, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 20, if you flip over to Matthew 20, this is is the mother who uh, made a bold request in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so this would be Salome, 
came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So this would be Jesus' aunt. She says, I have a request. You have Jesus' mother there, and you also have his aunt Salome there. And before in Jesus' ministry, Salome has come up to Jesus and she says, I have a request for you. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine, that's James and John, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. What a request. If you remember back from Mark, they had made the same exact request. They were in on it. Lord, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? So you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have Salome, Jesus' aunt, is there. Mary, the wife of Clopas. There's, by the way, there's at least six different Marys in the New Testament. So you have all these Marys to keep track of. It's like somebody being named Joe today. Regular, common name. So you have Mary, the wife of Clopas. She was the mother of James the Less, or James the Younger. This was another apostle of Christ, one of the twelve, and Joseph, who was another one of her sons. So we know Mary, Jesus' mother. We know her sister, Salome. We know Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. And we also know Mary Magdalene was there. Mary Magdalene had had a lot done for her by the Lord. If you go over to Luke chapter 8, verse 2, Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, let's go back to verse 1. Soon afterward, this is Jesus, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve, that is his twelve disciples, were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Now here it is, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These were evidently wealthy women who ministered to the Lord. So here she is. This is the one who had had demons cast out of her. There's nothing worse in this life than being demon-possessed. And there are still people today who have spirits within them, They're not saved, they're not believers, but they have given themselves over to the evil one. And what an awful sight that is to have somebody who has been completely possessed and indwelled by the devil. And here comes Jesus, he's greater, he's more powerful than the darkness, and he comes to her and he delivers her from seven demons. Get out of her in Jesus' name. Get out of her in Jesus' name. Get out of her in Jesus' name. Seven demons are removed from her. She owes everything to the Lord. She loves him. He has set her free. She knows what darkness feels like. She knows what demonic possession is like. She knows what demonic oppression is like. The sense of evil. This man is everything to her. 
He's delivered her from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And there she is standing there going, he's dead. He's dead. This is, this is the one who saved me. This is the one who took me from darkness and delivered me. This is the one who gave me pure joy for the first time. Joy like I'd never experienced before. The darkness and the things that I'd been walking in, the things that I'd been doing. He delivered me from all of it and he set me free. And Jesus still does the same thing today. Still does it. He delivers people out of darkness and he delivers them into light. And so they are, here they are, these four women. And they're standing there near the cross and they're just watching all this. And they're not allowed because according to Roman rule, Roman law, they're not allowed to make a large commotion. They're not allowed to wail and scream and cry. So they're keeping it in, silent sobs. You ever silently sobbed? This is what they're doing. There he is. There's the Lord. There's the King of glory. He's crucified on a cross. These are the women who ministered to him. Luke, in the only reference to this in chapter 23, verses 48 and 49, says that there were also crowds beating their chests. In other words, there were some who were softened at the sight of this. Yes, there were many mockers. Yes, the mocking was thorough. Yes, the mocking was complete. But there were many mockers who had been standing there watching, and all of a sudden, as they're watching Christ, forgive his enemy. Forgive this thief on the cross. Their hearts began to be softened, and they began to repent. That's what one does when they beat their breasts. They are repenting. They're saying, God, forgive me. These are ladies who have ministered to him. How awesome is that? Lord, how can we help you? Lord, what can we give you to further the ministry of the kingdom? Lord, what can we do to make sure that this goes on? Food you need? Water to drink? Lord, you need clothing? Your disciples need clothing? We'll run down to TJ Maxx and get you guys some clothing. Lord, whatever you need, we'll, we'll take care of. Lord, we'll, that's what they're doing. They're funding the ministry. Incredible. They're ministering. In Acts chapter 13, it says that the early church was ministering to the Lord. How, how do we minister to the Lord? Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be able to come to the Lord and say, Lord, you've given me everything. I'm not trying to pay you back because I could never pay you back. Lord, we never, we never pay you back. But Lord, how could I minister to you? It's interesting, the same concept is revealed by Christ when he tells us that when we minister word minister to the least of these were ministering to him Lord when were you naked when did I minister to you Lord when were you hungry and I gave you something to eat Lord when were you in prison and I came and visited you but I don't remember you I don't remember looking at your face and he says listen every time you helped the brethren every time you heard in church there was a need and you said I'm going to help. I'm going to do something about it. He's saying, you're not just ministering to them, but in that you're ministering to me. When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, Jesus says, you have ministered to me. So we have an opportunity just like these ladies did. You say, well, we we can't do what they did. Oh, yes, we can. Every time somebody comes in and says, there's a need here, 
brother or sister in Christ and we rally around them and we say we're going to provide for a need, we are not only ministering to them, but we are ministering to the Lord. You know how we minister to the Lord in our worship? In fact, why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We worship in all sorts of different ways. But Acts chapter 13, <clears throat> Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Now, some of your translations might say uh, worshiping, others might say ministering. Ministering would be a most appropriate word here, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord, or some translations say while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And we come in before the presence of the Lord and we say, Lord, we're going to worship you. Have you ever worshiped the Lord? I mean, this isn't, this isn't about singing songs. into church on a, on a Sunday morning, this isn't, well, let's get through the singing time. This is the day. Undignified worship. Now, David, uh, the king, danced in his underwear before the Lord. And Michael comes and says to him, that's his wife, one of his wives. Comes to him and says, how dignified is the king today? Making a fool of yourself. We're dignified in our worship. We come in and we have clasped hands and closed souls. The Lord took that pretty personal. The Bible says he closed Michael's womb. When we come in before the presence of the Lord, this is not just coming in. Everything we do is worship. It's not just, it's not just getting to church and the singing part, but in the singing part, it is worship. It's prayer. It's being lifted up, our hearts being lifted up to Christ as we say to the Lord, Lord, this is about me and you. I want to worship you. Lord, would you soften my heart to experience your power? Lord, all around me might not be experiencing you because of hard hearts, but Lord, would you soften my heart so that my focus goes on to you and actually experience your presence? Do you know that Christianity without experiencing the presence of God is no Christianity at all? It's no Christianity. What is it? Some of us need to be challenged to come into church and not just make our way through a service and barely wait to get out. What time is this thing over so that we can rush off to our next activity? But so that we come in with hearts of worship when the offering plate goes by. It's not time for chump change. Well, I think I have $10 left over from the bills this week. When we're talking about giving to the Lord, it's giving our best. It's a tithe. 
saying, Lord, it's a tithe isn't just a portion of our giving, it's a tenth of our giving. Lord, I sit down and I don't know how I'm going to pay the rest of these bills this week or this month, but Lord, you come first. And so we come to the place in our life where we say, if I collect 10 aluminum cans, Lord, one of those cans is yours. Lord, if I get 10 coins for my pay this week, one of those coins, Lord, is yours. And by faith, we say that no matter what is going on in our life, we worship the Lord. We worship him in our singing. We worship him in our giving. We worship him in our listening and the preaching of God's word. We wait. We reverence the Lord. We wait on him as we listen, as we even prepare on Saturday nights. Maybe we even lift up a whispered prayer saying, Oh Lord, would you help me prepare my heart? Would you prepare my heart so that I can listen to your word being preached with complete attention? Lord, help me not to jump up and down in the service. That's disrespectful. Constant commotion in a church service is disrespectful to the Lord. And so we we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, we will take care of these things before the service or at appropriate times in the service. But Lord, we want to give you our best. We want to reverence you in the way that we worship you. This is how we minister to the Lord. You know, in terms of our, even in our giving, if we're being fed by God's word, if we're being blessed in a church, should we not invest in what God is doing there? Or should we take it for free? David said, I will not give me the, give the Lord that which costs me nothing. These are, um, these ladies, as they're watching the Lord, these are devastated hearts of worship. They are devastated, and yet they are full of worship. You ever been there? You're devastated, but yet your heart is still worshiping. It's possible to be both. To be both tragically wounded, pierced, as it were, in your own soul, and yet be able to continue to worship the Lord. That's the beauty of this. But there's another reaction. If you go back to Mark chapter 15, last reaction. So these women, verse 41, had come up uh, to Jerusalem with him. They had ministered to him in Galilee there in verse 41, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, what are they preparing for? They're preparing for the Sabbath, which runs on Saturday, which will begin at sundown on Friday. That is the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, so he's part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the supreme court in Israel. Who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body. Now, why would he need to do that? If you go over to John chapter 19... John chapter 19. So you have this rich man. Oftentimes the Romans would say, listen, just uh, let the bodies rot on the cross. The Jews thought that was abhorrent. They would at least take the bodies down. And most criminals were just thrown into a common criminal grave. 
And uh, perhaps even a year later, they would come out, and if they were allowed, they'd be able to collect the bones. And if they had family, they would properly bury the person. But Jesus is known, he's known as a righteous man. He's not known as a sinner, because he's not. And so this man, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, if you go over to John chapter 19, he comes, and he wants to know if he can have the body of Christ, and he's going to give him a proper burial. If you look at verse 38 of of, um, John 19. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. He would have had a tomb in fact, they have found where Jesus was buried. There's, um, there's a proper site even today in Israel where you can go and visit it. It's, it's the site of where they have excavated um, tombs exactly like this one described in the exact place of where Christ would have been buried, cut out of the rock. And so there were certain tombs that you would have to, they would have an entrance and you'd have to stoop down and walk into this small room and they would be laid there, the body, the corpse would be laid there on a shelf, and it would be allowed to decompose, and a year later, they would come in, and they would collect the bones, and they would put them in an ossuary, a box, and that would be the final stage of burial. So instead of throwing Jesus in this common grave, this man who respects Jesus, he's sitting on the council, which means that not everybody sitting on the Sanhedrin wanted to see Christ crucified. Joseph didn't. And he's sitting there and he's bothered by everything that has been going on, but he's a secret follower of Jesus. He's not come out until this point. He's not disclosed the fact that he is a follower. There's another follower who perhaps was a secret one as well. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. It probably was more like 65 pounds, still a lot of weight of spices. And this was put on strips and then put on Jesus so that the stench of a corpse rotting would not smell so bad. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So here are these men come to Jesus by night in John chapter 3 and another finally says I can't keep quiet anymore he had been a secret follower both of these men were sitting on the highest court of the land the Sanhedrin and they said we're no longer going to keep silent this was a courageous move on the part of Joseph because he's now going to be identified with Christ if Christ had committed high treason this would have been unheard of to even go request the body. Shows something about Pilate that he even allowed this request. But these men who were following Christ in secret finally came out into the light of day, into public. There comes a certain point where if somebody is a true follower of Christ, where they say, I no longer can keep the secret. I can't, I can't hide in the shadows and follow Christ in the shadows. I love him. I think he's right. I believe he's the king of Israel. I believe he's the Messiah. 
but I'm not going to come out and follow him publicly because of the cost, my name, my reputation. And so they secretly follow him. But if someone loves the Lord, there has to come a point where they not only say, yes, yes, I kind of support Christ in a cursory way, kind of, kind of from the periphery, kind of in the shadows. But a person finally comes to the point where they say, I'm moving from the shadows, I'm moving from the darkness, and I'm coming out and I'm stating emphatically that I'm a follower of Christ. So let me go through these three reactions real quick. We have the centurion, he has this strong and resolute confession, this strong, sincere confession. He says, this is the Christ, this is the Son of God. Maybe there's someone like that here today. You've come in here, you've not even realized it. Maybe you've heard the gospel a lot, maybe you haven't heard the gospel much at all. But you just know in your heart of heart, this is the truth. Perhaps like you're, you're like the women who are standing there, and you're saying, I believe in him, I worship him, but right now you're going through a time of immense grief, and it's just overshadowing everything, but you, you can't see quite clearly, but you still love Jesus with all of your heart, even though you can't see the end yet. You're just like, I'm with him. That's you. And perhaps there are some who are in the shadows today. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus. I mean, I'll, I'll kind of go after him. I believe in him, I, I guess. But shh, don't, I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to be seen as a Jesus freak. I don't want to come out into the light of day. Perhaps you've been going back and forth. You've been jumping in and out a little bit. You've been trying to please the worldly sphere that you're in. And you're also trying to serve Christ. And it's not working but inwardly you have a heart for Christ. And today the Lord is saying to you, it's time to come out of the shadows. It's time to make a stand for Christ. You're either in or you're out. So these men are going to bury the Lord. They have to do it quickly before sundown in the Passover comes. John mentions the Jewish custom. Jewish people did not burn dead heroes as some Gentiles did. Keener says this, or mutilate them for embalming as Egyptians did. They buried them. I close with this, but we've had questions before come into this church. People have come and asked me and they say something like this, is it wrong to get cremated? And what we see in the scripture, we don't have an answer. The Bible never says it's wrong to get cremated. I recently had a lady call me in a panic. Listen, true story. Not that I would ever tell you an untrue story. Call me in a panic. She was concerned because somebody, some Christian had told her that it was wrong to be cremated and that they were going to go to hell because she had had a relative cremated. And after I talked with her, I was able to send her a Bible, able to comfort her with the words of Scripture. Listen, the Bible says nothing, and it doesn't matter to a great extent how you're buried. In fact, it matters not at all when Jesus comes back and raises us from the dead. Listen, what about people who have uh, jumped off of ships and been eaten by sharks? Or uh, people who have been burned in house fires? Think the Lord can raise their bodies from the dead? And say, well, I don't know about that. I never thought about that. I guess they have, to have a whole intact body in the ground. Really? Well, what about uh, decomposition? What about the fact that you just wait about a year, that body's pretty well rotten. 
No, no, listen. The only reason we have burial in the Bible has nothing to do with the resurrection. I remember standing at my grandfather's grave as we lowered a can into the ground, his ashes. That was it. But the hope is for every believer, no matter how one has been buried, if they know Jesus, it doesn't matter if you've been cremated, eaten by sharks, buried in a casket, or burned in a house fire, it doesn't matter. If you know Jesus Christ, someday your body will be raised from the dead and you will be with the Lord forever. Can you say amen? Amen. That's, that's just the way it is. So the question is this. Yes, we want to honor people. And if the best way to honor that person is to bury them whole, there does seem to be some symbolic imagery in that, that we're buried in the ground and alive with Christ. But ultimately, it's not going to keep one person, not one believer, from being raised from the dead. And this is our great hope. Go back to Mark 15 here. We read through this and we're done. So he's a respected member of the council, verse 43. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already was dead. And he was. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone, a great circular disc. They found Stones exactly like this. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, one of those Marys we talked about, saw where he was laid. And so he was buried. You know what the scripture wants us to know? Christ was really dead. This is why we have in the gospel, it's not just Christ died and Christ rose again. Over and over again, it's Christ died, Christ was buried. Christ rose again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. He was actually dead. Would you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the fact that even in your death, there were still people being drawn to you because of the work of God in their lives. They knew there was something unique about this whole event. They didn't see the resurrection coming. They didn't understand that. They weren't anticipating that. But they did know that this was the Son of God. And Lord, how that all worked out in their minds, we don't know, but we do know that there was worship going on. We know that there was belief going on. We know that there was reverence. Lord, we ask you today that you would speak to our hearts and open our hearts up to the, to the truth of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, that Christ was buried, and that Christ rose again. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name.